I love sequels, don't you? I know you do. Hollywood knows you love sequels. And that's why I think I went to see Rocky number 10, I think it was, or something like that, right? But we all like sequels. Well, Nahum is sort of a sequel to Jonah. If we were to call him a sequel, we'd say Jonah the sequel. That would be the name of, of this book. Jonah, if you'll remember, was a minor prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and God sent him to Assyria, to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and he preached there that God was going to destroy them. For 40 days he preached God was going to destroy them. And if you'll remember, Nineveh repented. Led by the king of, by the king of Nineveh, by the king of the Assyrians, he, they repented. And God turned back away from his judgment and his punishment because of their sorrow and their repentance. You'll remember how distressing it was for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And one of the reasons that it was so distressing for him was that the Assyrians had such a reputation of cruelty in their day. I mean, they specialized in brutality and cruelty. For instance, when their armies captured a city or a country, they would many times skin the, uh, the people alive. They would decapitate them. They would mutilate them by cutting off one or more of their limbs. They would rip the tongues out of people. They disemboweled pregnant women, allowing their children to fall out onto the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see a picture of why Jonah just absolutely hated these people and did not want to go. That's not justifying Jonah in any way. Just I want us to get a better picture. They would take children by the feet and dash their heads against rocks. They made pyramids out of human heads. They would pierce the chins of people and put ropes through their chins and then tie them like in a kennel so that they could not get away. Uh, Shalmanezar, who was the leader of Assyria Nineveh from 859 to 824, said, and I quote, a pyramid of heads I reared in the front of his city, their youth and their maidens I burned in the flames. Zanacharib, who ruled from 705 to 8, 6, 681, said, and I quote, I cut their throats like lambs, I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and the entrails run down upon the wide earth. Again, I'm trying not to be too graphic, but I do want you to get an understanding of why the people of their day hated the Assyrians so, and why they feared them as well. And so when Jonah was asked to go to this people and to preach to them that God was going to destroy them, he refused, if you remember at the beginning, refused and went in the opposite direction. And, and when God forgave them, he was still equally angry with God for forgiving them, even though God had forgiven him of much as well. Here's a question for us. How could God stave off his judgment against this so corrupt, so cruel, so wicked a people? And you remember his answer to Jonah. You may not like his answer, but this was his answer to Jonah when Jonah asked that question. You know, God said, should I not have mercy? Should I not have mercy on the 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh? This is a big city who do not know their left from their right hand. And that was, that was why God said that he staved off his judgment when, uh, when they repented. But a hundred years have gone by, maybe a few more than that, uh, since Jonah preached and, and the people have repented and children have been born and grandchildren have been born and, and, and now new kings have risen in Assyria. And guess what? I'm sure you've guessed it, but their repentance, it went away. They forgot their repentance. And, and so their turnaround was turned around from and they became the wicked people, the cruel people that they had been all along. In fact, their little repentance here when Jonah went to them became an anomaly, if you would, on the legacy of their oppression and brutality. 
In other words, all the things that they did, that little blip on the radar screen was only that just a blip on the radar screen. And now they're back again enslaving and torturing and killing people. And, uh, and now they've set their sights on Judah, by the way. They've, actually, they've already come down. They have destroyed the northern kingdom. Now, it was in those days, I believe, that Assyria is laying siege to Jerusalem, that Nahum is given this divine message from God, the one that we're going to read, the one that we're going to study in just a few moments. And um, so as we, as we kind of get into his, what, he, what God gives him, let me just tell you a couple of things about Nahum himself before we actually jump into the book. Nahum, his name means comfort. And I don't think he was a comfort to Assyria. He was going to be a comfort to Judah. His name is, is, is a diminutive of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, Nahum's kind of like Jimmy and Jim, right? It was a, it was a diminutive of the word Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah. Um, he was from the, the city of Elkosh, but that is all that we know about him. And the truth be known, we're not even sure where Elkosh was. There is a city now named Nahum in Israel, and some people have believed that Elkosh was renamed Nahum, and that, was his, and that was his city of origin. But the honest truth is, we don't know anything about Nahum other than his name. We don't know anything about even where he came. And, and so God's going to speak through this unnamed prophet, and he's going to give a message to Assyria, but I, I think it's also a message to Judah to encourage or comfort them. So to help us understand this book, and again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to, the book divides itself, or at least I'm going to divide the book into four parts. And I'm going to tell you what the four parts are, and I'm also going to walk you through each one of the parts. And then at the end of this thing, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to ask the question, why is Nahum in our Bible? Why did God keep it there? Why is it there for us? I mean, it's obviously a great book for, the, for Israel in that day, and, and it was a great letter. It was a great prophecy for Assyria, although there's no evidence that they really heeded or even thought anything of it. But, but why for us? Why is the book included? And I'm going to give you two reasons why I believe God has included the book of Nahum in our Bibles. So let's kind of dive into the story of Nahum or to the prophecy of Nahum. The first part is chapter 1, 1 through 8. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. And I would say the first part, I would call this the character of God. So as Nahum begins, he begins by telling them about God's character. And God may have forgiven the Assyrians under Jonah, but that doesn't mean that there's not coming a day of judgment. And so Nahum begins in verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now remember, this is a message for Nineveh. This is a message for Assyria, just like Jonah had a message for them. Verse 6 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. By, by him. Nahum begins and he says, I don't want you, Assyria, to forget something about God. God is a righteous judge. And he by in no means is he going to clear uh, the guilty. We often think of God as a doting grandfather who, you know, never wants to discipline anyone, right? He's just so filled with love and all. But that is just not how God describes himself in the Bible. Now, don't misunderstand. I look forward to being a granddad, and I look forward to not having to discipline my grandkids and giving them back to my kids, right? So, I know some of you grandparents are really smiling. I, I think that's a really cool part of being a granddad, right? You get to love them and let them discipline them, right? But God is not our grandfather. God says he's a father, but he also says that he is the judge of all the earth. And Nahum is telling the Ninevites, the Assyrians, God is not mocked. 
You haven't fooled God. Justice is the Lord's. Vengeance is his. God is not embarrassed, by the way. Listen, God is not embarrassed to use words like, I'm a jealous God. I'm an avenging God. I'm, an a, wrathful, I'm a wrathful God. To describe himself to the people of Assyria and to the people of Israel and even to us to this day. Now, lest we forget in the midst of these opening words of Nahum, verse 7 is in there as well. Nahum writes in verse 7, he says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So we should be encouraged. God is a good God. But we need not forget that God is also the great judge of all things. When, when I follow him, when I am his, he will sustain me. He will comfort me. He will take sh- I can take shelter in him. But the truth is, he's also going to be my judge one day. Then Nahum goes on to say to the Assyrians, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end to his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Those who love God, he's a source of refuge for them. To those who do not love God, to those who fight against God, Nahum says, God is utterly going to destroy you. That moves us to the second part of Nahum's prophecy, which is verse 9 through verse 15 of the same first chapter. And Nahum tells the Assyrians that their plot to destroy Judah is, is of no, no effect. It's not going to happen. God promises to rescue his nation. So in verse 9 of chapter 1, Nahum writes, and he's writing to Assyria, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now, I'm pretty sure that what Nahum's talking about there is what Sennacherib would do when he ruled 705 to 681 B.C. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, you can turn if you want, but you can just listen. Probably be easier for you just to listen. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, Sennacherib has come down. He's destroyed the northern tribes. He's destroyed the northern kingdom. And, and basically, I think Nahum is writing to Judah to say he's not going to get to do it again. And so... King Hezekiah, who is king in Judah, he has actually done some things to try to stave off this this assault from the king of Assyria to no avail. And so we read in verse 10, this is what King Zennacherib of Assyria says. And he's, he's, he's talking to the people of Judah who are, who are in the city of Jerusalem as he besieges it. What are you relying on that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? Isn't Hezekiah misleading you to give you over to death by famine and thirst when he says, the Lord our God will keep us from the grasp of the king of Assyria? Didn't Hezekiah remove himself, his high places and his altars and say to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and you must burn incense on it? Don't you know that I and my fathers, what we have done to all the peoples of the land, have any of the nation, national gods of the lands been able to rescue their land from my power? Who among all the gods of these nations that my predecessors completely destroyed was able to rescue his people from my power that your God should be able to deliver you from my power? So now don't let Hezekiah deceive you and don't let him mislead you like this. Don't believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to rescue his people from my power and the power of my fathers. How much less will your God rescue you from my power? So here's the picture. Zennacherib and all his armies are encircled around Jerusalem. He sends his messenger in and he's basically saying to all the people, why are you listening to your king? I have defeated, we have defeated every people group and every God of every people group out there. What makes you think you're God? And by the way, their God is the same God of the northern kingdom that's been destroyed. 
Why, what makes you think that somehow or another you're going to stand up to, to my powers? And now, now what's going on inside of Jerusalem is that King Hezekiah and Isaiah are prophesying that God will not allow him to, be, to destroy them. And furthermore, I think the letter of Nahum or the prophecy of Nahum and these verses in particular that we're looking at right now are probably saying to the, Judah, to the Judeites, to the Israelites who are in Judah, listen, do not be afraid. God's going to stand in for you. God's going to fight for you. So in the end, Hezekiah actually gets the last laugh. Verse 20, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated every valiant warrior, leader, and commander in the camp of the king of Assyria. So that the king of Assyria returned in disgrace to his land. He went to the temple of his God, and there some of his own children struck him down with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the power of Zennacherib of Assyria and from the power of all others, and he gave them rest on every side. Now back to Nahum, verse 12. Nahum speaks to the Jews. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. Here's what I believe that Nahum is saying to Judah. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of this guy for you. Then God speaks to Assyria, verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. God basically says to Assyria, I'm going to absolutely obliterate you from the face of the earth. This had been in the middle to early 600s when Babylon would come and lay siege to Nineveh. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But listen to this. By 331, Alexander the Great would come and fight the battle of Arabella or the battle of Guacamela in Iraq with the Persians. And he would fight it right there where Nineveh existed. But you know what? He doesn't even know that Nineveh even existed in that spot. So has so has their obliteration been complete. When the Babylonians would destroy Nineveh, and again, we'll talk about this in just a moment, they leveled the city. And 300 years later, Alexander the Great didn't know it even existed. They know it exists because of the records that, uh, that have remained. But as far as the city is concerned, it was absolutely wiped out within 300 years. Now, another encouraging word to Judah Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So Judah, don't worry about Assyria anymore. You know, you keep your feast, you worship, because he will never again trouble you. That brings us to the third part of Nahum, which it begins in chapter 2, verse 1, and goes through verse 12. And in this third part, we're going to call it the destruction of Nineveh described. And what we find in these first verses of chapter 2 is God describing what's about to happen in Nineveh or what's going to happen in Nineveh in the years to come. In verse 2, God says, those who have plundered will now be plundered. In verse 9, God says, their silver and their gold will be plundered. 
In chapter 2, the description of the Babylonian destruction of Nineveh is pretty complete. In verse 3, it says, The shield of the mighty men is red, probably red with the blood of the Ninevites. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The uniforms of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were red. They had red, had red robes or red clothes, underclothing on them. And over, over top of that was their, their um, what do you call it? their shields, their, their armament, their leather armament. And so they would have looked red. In verse 8, it says, Nineveh is like a pool whose water runs away. Halt, halt, they cried, but none turned back. Nineveh was going to be drained, God says, absolutely destroyed by their enemies. Now, history records for us that Babylon would lay siege. Remember, the empires went like this, Syria, and then Assyria took over Syria and everything underneath it. And then Babylon would come and take over Assyria. And then eventually the Persians would come and take over all of them. And then eventually the Greeks would come and take over all of that. That's how the empires would grow. Well, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, they would be the, they would be the people group that would besiege Nineveh. And uh, so history tells us that they besieged Nineveh for two years. For two years, they encircled this great city that never thought it would fall. However, in the second year, they had a really bad rain. And in that year, the rain, the Tigris River, the city sitting right on the edge of the Tigris River, the Tigris River overflowed its banks, probably an awful lot like, uh, like we saw in, in Houston or whatever, but it's a river and it's flowing. And as it rises up, guess what it does? It washes away the wall of Nineveh for a huge section. The Tigris washed away the wall so that the Babylonians could ride their chariots into the city. And so Nahum says in chapter 2, verse 6, the river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Nahum describes the battle that would ensue in verses 3 and 4, the fighting of chariots in the street. You see, the reason chariots could fight in the street was because the wall was washed away and the Babylonians could ride their chariots into the city of Nineveh and destroy it. And that's what history records happened. The chariots come with flashing metal on, uh, on that day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. The Babylonians overran the city. Now, one thing that you may not know, but I found this very interesting, is that the Assyrians had a prophecy in their own city. Not a prophecy from, from God, but a prophecy from their own God, I guess. And the Assyrians had a prophecy that Nineveh would always stand until the Tigris River fought against them. And when the Tigris wa washed away the wall of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh gathered all his wives and all of his children and all of his wealth into the palace, and then he committed suicide and burned it down around him because he saw in the washing away of the wall of Nineveh by the Tigris, he saw the Tigris fighting against him, and so he committed suicide and destroyed his family. That brings us to the fourth part of the, of the book of Nahum, and that's chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, 19, the very last part of the book. And in this last section, I'm calling it God's declaration of judgment against, against Nineveh. In chapter 2, verse 13, God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour, devour your young lions. In these verses, he follows up with why he's going to do this. He says, because you are a bloody and ruthless people, killing all kinds of hosts of people. And, and, and we already talked about how gruesome these people were. He said, because you're a bloody people and because you're a lying people, I'm going to do this. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, when Zennacherib came down to Judah, Hezekiah paid him a tribute of 22,500 pounds of silver, 2,500 pounds, 2,250 pounds of gold and for Zennacherib to leave. And he said he was. As soon as he gave him the gold and the silver, Zennacherib went back on his word and came and sought to destroy them anyway. God says, because you're a lying person. He calls him, he says of them, God says in chapter 3, he says, you betray the nations with your whorings. So in other words, they, they are a, deceit, a deceitful people who, who basically lure folks into trusting them only to destroy them. In verse 5, God says he was against them. In verse 5, he says he's going to expose their nakedness. What that means is he's going to bring about their shame. In verse 6, he says he's going to make a spectacle of them to all the world around him. Around them, And then God says at the end of chapter 3, notice this, he says, uh, you are no better than Thebes. It depends, on, it depends on your translation. I can't remember the other, no, no Ami or no something. But anyway, there was a, that was the name for the city of Thebes, an Egyptian city that they destroyed, that the Assyrians had destroyed. God says to them, he says, look, you are no better than them. And, and just as you destroyed them, I am about to destroy you. In verse 12, he says, your fortresses will be like a ripe fig tree. You shake it and the figs, i.e. the fortresses, fall off. The people that are coming against you, verse 15, they're going to devour you like the locusts, God declares. In verse 17, he says, your leaders will be like grasshoppers. They will fly away and no one knows where to find them. Indeed, Assyria would be absolutely obliterated. And Nahum ends by saying that the Assyrians are like asleep, but God is about to waken them. And in verse 19, he ends this this way. He says, you're fatally wounded. There's no hope for you, but everyone claps when they hear this news because your constant cruelty has caused them pain. And thus that ends the prophecy of Nahum against Assyria. Now we live in hindsight to those words, and it's easy for us to see the fulfillment of what God said he was going to do uh, through Nahum against the Assyrians. And uh, I believe we can be encouraged by that. But why is Nahum included in our Bibles? Why, why did God choose, you know, of all the prophetical books that he could have put in our Bible, why this one? You know, I mean, this prophecy surely encouraged the Jews. And had the, had the Assyrians read it, assuming they did, they most likely scoffed at it. But I, I think it's a record in perpetuity for his people to read that God does what he says he's going to do, right? So it serves in that way. On the surface, I would also say God has included it because it's a record of his workings in history. I also see it as, as, for, as a way for us to see his predictive work in history. But I want to suggest to you there's two other reasons why God included this book for us to read forever and ever and ever as his people until he comes again. And here's my two reasons why I believe the book of Nahum has been included for us. I looked for more, but these were the, these were the two that just really seemed to jump out to me, and, I, and I, these are the two I want to share with you. Here's the first one. This is why I think God has Nahum in your Bibles, because he wants you to see that repentance is a present tense verb, and it's not a past tense verb. Here's what I mean by that. I know that's kind of, maybe kind of cryptic, but here's what I believe God wants to say to all of us through Nahum, is he wants to say to us that past repentance that doesn't continue as a present reality is no repentance at all. 
and not a repentance that he will honor. So the Ninevites repented a hundred years earlier. And and because of their repentance, God in his mercy forgave them and didn't destroy them. He He didn't judge them like he said he was going to as a result of their repentance. But a hundred years later, they're no longer walking in their repentance. And I believe the lesson is this. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in loving kindness towards us. God responds to our repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But repentance needs to be a continual way of life for us. It's not a moment in the past that we make a decision to repent. No, it needs to be a continual walk of my life. And repentance needs to continue every single day of my life. 150 years, 100 to 150 years have passed since Jonah and Nahum. Why are they both in our Bibles? They're both in our Bibles to show us the mercy and kindness of God. But they're in our Bible, Nahum's in our Bible to show us that repentance must continue. And here's what I want to say to all of you today. Our repentance must not be a one-time thing. Our repentance must be a daily repentance towards the Lord. Walking in in humility before him, walking in continual surrender to him. I have to walk in that repentance daily. Because you know why? Because I'm falling. I don't know if I'm falling daily, but, but I'm falling. I'm failing. I'm still a sinful person. Even in my redeemed state, I'm still a sinner. And so I must continue to walk in my repentance before God. I think that's the message of Nahum. You and I have to walk in continual, everyday repentance. None of us are going to be perfect. None of us are going to walk sinlessly anymore. We'll still slip. We'll still stumble. Sometimes we'll fall headlong into sin, which is why repentance must be continual, why repentance must be daily. God, who is slow to anger and he's merciful, gracious to accept our repentance, also says that we must walk in faithfulness to him. John would say, You know, if we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The apostle Paul said, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so if if there is just an applicational truth of this point, it would be, My whole life needs to be presented to God day after day in repentance before him. When I stumble, when I fall, when you sin against the Lord, get up, brush yourself off, repent before the Lord. Say, Lord, you know, I recognize my sin. Turn, have a change of mind. Remember, repentance means change of mind. Change of mind, Lord, I don't want to continue there. And turn and begin to walk in faithfulness to God again. Somewhere along the way, the Ninevites forgot their repentance. And God sent Nahum. All right, here's the, second, here's the second reason I believe that God includes Nahum in our Bibles. And it is because God is not shy about his commitment to be judge. And I already kind of said this, but I'm going to say it more specifically, more, more, more clearly maybe now. God is not at all afraid to be known as a holy, avenging, righteous judge. So again, I read you verse 2 from chapter 1. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And here's the point. 
We must not confuse God's loving kindness and his mercy towards us. We must not confuse his patience with us and, you know, with an unwillingness to one day sit in judgment over us. We shouldn't confuse those two things. You know, there's a story, and, and you know, I've been hearing it all my Christian life, but there's a story of a young man who was in New York City and wasn't paying attention and stepped out in front of a bus. And right when he did, somebody behind him grabbed him by the shirt and yanked him back just in time to save his life. And the young man, of course, was flustered, and he turns around, and it's an old man that's, that's reached out and saved his life. And, you know, he thanks him or whatever. A couple weeks later, the same boy is in a court of law. And in this court of law, he's found guilty, but he looks up and the guy who saved his life is now the judge over the court. Now, whether this is a true story, I don't know, but it's a great illustrative story. And, uh, and the young man says to the judge, man, you saved me the other week. Can't you save me now? Can't you do something for me now? And, and the man who saved him there on the street, now his judge says this, um, sorry, son, sorry. On that day, I was your savior. On this day, I'm your judge. And just as that judge had no trouble distinguishing between saving the young man the, the, the week before and now judging him, so the Bible says that God is not going to have any trouble being our judge. As much as he loves us, he is our judge. Over 75 times, God is called judge in the Bible. Psalm 75, 7, but God is the judge who puts down one and exalts another. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Psalm 76, 8 and 9, you caused judgment to be heard from the heavens. The earth feared and was still when God rose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. God is our father. He desires to be our father. But I tell you, at the end of time, he promises to be our judge as well. Now, I already read this earlier. I was trying to read something that I felt like would, would go along with what the, the, the point of the message was this morning. I read this earlier John, from John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Have you ever wished that God wasn't going to judge one day? Have you ever wished that? Have you ever wished, boy, I wish, that, I wish that God wasn't going to judge me. I wish that God, I wasn't going to have to answer before God. I, you know, I think maybe that thought crosses all of our minds, you know, that I wish I didn't have to answer to anyone. I wish God wasn't going to be the judge at the end. Let me challenge that thinking. You know, if there is no judge at the end, if there's no one to judge, then there is no right and wrong. If there is no judge who will hold us accountable, then, then there is no right and wrong. And if there is no right and wrong, then everything goes. And if there is no right or wrong and everything goes and there's no one to judge at the end, then listen, there'll be no justice. There'll be no justice at the end. Robert Jarvik, and I, I forgot to look whether he's still living or not, but he's the inventor of the artificial heart and he's an atheist. And this is what he says. He says, in reality, there are no such things as human rights. There are conventions we agree to abide by. All we know is that we are part of nature and there is no scientific basis whatsoever for thinking we are better than all the rest of it. That means we have no more basic rights than viruses other than those we have created for ourselves through our intellect. In his famous playwright, or in his famous play, the playwright uh, Arthur Miller um, 
It was, I'm trying to think it was called. It was after the fall, he puts these words in his main character, a fellow by the name of Quentin. He says, my disaster happened when one day I looked up and I realized the bench was empty. No God, no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying, of course, despair. There's, there's nothing at the end if there is no judge. I think the reason why God has preserved Nahum is to remind us that God is judge and that God will judge me and that God will judge you. I think that's why Nahum's in our Bibles. He is an avenging God on his enemies. He will not clear the guilty. God will judge you. And I wonder this morning, are you ready to face him on that day? Because you're going to have to. You're going to have to. I want to end our study of Nahum with a quote from it. I want to end with a quote from the book of Nahum, chapter 1. I think it's verse 15. And it's found in Isaiah 52, 7. And it's found in the book of Romans, chapter 10 as well. I want to end with this. Paul has just established in the Romans 10 passage, he's just established that everyone who calls in the name of Jesus can be saved. Everyone who calls the name of Jesus can be saved from from the second death, from the lake of fire. But then he asks in verse 14, How then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about them, about hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, earlier in Romans, in chapter 1, Paul has made this statement. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. I mean, I love that verse. It's become, it's become just such a go-to verse for me. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the gospel is the power of God. And every time the gospel is preached, God's power is going out to save people, to the Jew and to the Gentile. And so, and everyone who responds to the gospel, you know, in faith, man, then their salvation is from the Lord, okay? So he's established that. Now he says, but how can they hear that unless somebody goes? How can they hear that unless there's a preacher? And by the way, I've said this many, many times, but, he, but he's not talking about a preacher like me. He's talking to a preacher like you, where you're, where you're sharing not preachy, preachy, but you're sharing with your coworkers and you're sharing with your neighbors and you're sharing with your friends. Paul says, how can anybody hear unless somebody goes and just tells them this powerful gospel to save them? How shall they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? How shall they believe unless they hear? They're not unless somebody goes. And so here, here's really cool. So God says, I'm sending all of you. I'm sending all of you to be that preacher. And all of us are to go and to make disciples. All of us are to go and share the gospel. And so then Paul quotes Nahum and Isaiah. And he says, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now in Nahum's context, Nahum was saying, how blessed are those who bring this great news that Judah is going to survive and that Assyria is going to be obliterated. How blessed are those who bring that news. In Paul's case, Paul is saying, how blessed are those who bring this good news that not Assyria, but that death has been defeated. That you don't have to be afraid of dying anymore. You don't have to be afraid of death anymore. It's been defeated. And so Paul would write in his letter to Corinth, and he would say in chapter 15, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus would tell Mary or Martha, excuse me, in John 11, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And then in Revelation chapter 20, you know, and again, I think I've already read this as well. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their, to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one judged according to his works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Dying we will die, yes, but Jesus defeated death. He rose from the dead. And Nahum says, how blessed are those who, who bring this good news. Different good news than, than Paul's talking about. He quotes this and he says, how blessed are you if you bring this good news on the mountain that Jesus defeated death. Now, this isn't in my notes anymore, but this morning, this morning in our... Um, in our prayer time, I want to read you the, that we read Psalm 40, and I want to read you something from Psalm 40, if it shows up on my electronic Bible here in just a second. I'm sorry, I should have gotten a paper version for this. Psalm 40, we're reading this this morning. This is our, this is our text for our prayer time. Listening, this is what God wrote in Psalm 40. He said, I proclaim, David speaking, I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed. As you know, Lord, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. David says, man, I didn't keep my mouth shut. I, I, didn't, I didn't keep this to myself. I shared this with everyone. And then in, uh, this morning in Sunday school, in Acts chapter 4, did you catch this? If you, if you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, Peter and John, you know, they've been put before the Sanhedrin. And remember, they're bold and they speak up, but they go back and they pray. And this is what they pray. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hands for healing and signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak God's message with boldness. I tell you what, I mean, it was like God just kind of accented this morning for me that we need to be the bearers of good news. And you know what? There's not a better time of the year than right now. If maybe, maybe the resurrection of Jesus' time would be better. But there's not a better time other than that, than this right now, for us to talk about how Jesus left heaven to come here to die for us so that death might be defeated. And you know what? Um, God says, I'm judge. I'm not afraid of it. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm glad to own it. I will be your judge. But you know what, everybody? We don't have to fear the judge because he wants to take our sin. He will in no wise clear, I'm just talking now. He will in no wise clear the guilty. He's not going to clear us, folks. He doesn't just, he's not a doting grandfather. In fact, so important was justice to God that Jesus would bear your death for you. That's how important justice is for God. And he's not just overlooking your sin. He's willing to forgive your sin if you will put your trust in what he did. 
And now he says to all of us, let's take the message, everybody. Go and make disciples of all the nations. I challenge myself and I'm challenging you. Let's be the good feet on the mountain. Let's be the good feet here in Surrey. Let's be the good feet in Smithfield. Let's be the good feet at our workplaces. Let's be the good feet in our neighborhood that takes this great message. Let's pray. I ask you to bow your heads for just a moment before I, before I pray. And there's one thing I left out that I just want to just, you know, some of you may need not to take the message. You need to, make, to apply the message to yourself. I tell you with great certainty, Christ died for you. He bore your sin on the cross. He bore your death. He bore the penalty of your sin, your death. He died for you. And if you are willing this morning to repent and look to him, change your mind about him and own him as your king and as your Lord. If you're willing, right there where you sit, you can become a follower of Jesus. You can be born again, to quote Jesus. You can have a new life. Your sin can be forgiven and washed away and you can become a new creature in Christ, the old things passing away. You can be cleared, not because God's excusing your guilt, but because Jesus bears your guilt. And I invite you right now where you sit to trust in Christ. You say, how do I do that, Jimmy? Well, you, just, you just believe. You just say, Lord, I believe and I trust in you and I receive you. I want to follow you. And you just make it your own words. But you say, Lord, I want to follow you. And some of you maybe have been listening to this message week after week after week. And hey, here's a point of decision. Yes, repentance begins at the point of decision, but it continues on into the present. But is there anybody who needs to start today, who needs to repent and say, I trust in you, Lord Jesus? And right there where you sit, just in your own words, just tell him. I'm not even going to give you any words. Just talk to him. Tell him you want to follow him. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, make this your prayer, this wonderful time of remembrance for us that God became like us so that he could save us. Man, would you just say, Lord, fill us with boldness that we might speak your truth, that we might be the, the wonderful feet of the one who brings the good news to people around us. Would you just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm tired of hiding this in myself. I don't want to, I want to be like David. I want to proclaim it. I don't want to hide it. I want to be like the disciples and the early apostles. I, mean, I want to pray for boldness that, that you would show me how to speak up for Jesus. Lord, hear our prayers, the cries of our heart. Lord, thank you for reminding us of of, of who you are, Lord, that, uh, that you are judge. And thank you for encouraging us to walk in daily repentance. Not a one-time thing in the past that we put our trust in, but today walk according to our own desires. Lord, I pray that we would walk daily in repentance, daily seeking to follow you, daily seeking to you know, own our sin and turn from it and follow you. Lord, I thank you for uh, this great trust that's been given to us to share the gospel. Lord, may we be, may we be faithful to it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.